1: But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite.
3: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
0: You're on Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Here's a little bonus we've dropped into the feed. It's an interview I gave to a C-SPAN book TV show called In-Depth, where they pick an author to speak with for a couple of hours about uh, their books, their writing, their process, and their thoughts on the world. And um, it was a great honor to do it, just the fact that people cared about me as an author like that. And, um, the first half hour is an interview with the host who read a bunch of my books and kind of knew what I was about and wanted to go in depth as the show would be was, was called. And then they do an hour and a half of call in with various readers and people who are interested in not just what I write, but uh, how I write and how I think about writing and my books. And it was a really wonderful experience for me. It was this, this huge honor. And stuff came up. Stories came up. I remembered things I really have never talked about before. And it was really the uniqueness of the kind of stuff that came up that made me want to share this um, with you, the Team Human community. So this is just a little extra thing. Um, Strap in. It's two hours so you can pop it in the car or uh, bake something and and have a listen and let me know what you think. Uh, Thanks a lot for being there.
4: And now on Book TV, we're live with author and professor Douglas Rushkoff who, over the next two hours, will take your calls and questions through email, text, and social media. His books include Program or Be Programmed, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, and 2022's Survival of the Richest, about plans that tech billionaires are making to survive after Earth becomes uninhabitable due to climate change or some other
5: catastrophic event.
4: Author and professor Douglas Rushkoff, you describe yourself in your latest book, Survival of the Richest, as a humanist who writes about the impact of digital technologies, but not a futurist. What's the difference between the two?
0: Well, a futurist is usually someone they come to to tell you what's going to happen in the future. And I've I've been right about that a lot, so they call me a futurist, but really what I am is a presentist. I'm uh, more interested in looking at Looking at and describing accurately what is happening right now. And that's usually an easier way to, uh, uh, to know what's going to happen in the future. But I don't usually talk about it. I just, most futurists, they, they seem more like propagandists kind of fighting for the, the future that they want to see or positions their company in the best place or positions them as a consultant in the most needed place. And, you know, you get people interested in the future by scaring them about this is going to happen or that's going to happen. But if you're a presentist, which is really more what I am, kind of a cultural anthropologist or a sociologist looking at what is, um, you end up really freed to talk about things in ways that other people don't You know. So for me, uh, when I realized I was a presentist was when um, AOL was buying Time Warner. I don't know if you remember that, back in 1999. And everyone was all excited that AOL, the first big digital company, is now gonna buy uh, Time Warner, the the old media company. And this meant the new synergy of old media, and new media was coming and how great it was. And the New York Times called me to write the piece on what was happening, the op-ed. And so I wrote this piece saying, Well, as I look at it and as I understand it, it looks to me like AOL is cashing in its chips that Steve Case, the founder of AOL, he grew this thing as much as he could. His subscriber rate is probably peaking and he's buying he's using his inflated stock to buy a real company like Time Warner. that as amusement parks and cable and movie libraries and all that. And it probably means we are now at the peak of the dot-com bubble and they called me and said we can't publish this everybody says that this is the greatest thing and it means that all this stuff is coming and that the new age is coming and I, well i'm not a futurist i'm just looking at what is and what is is that it looks to me like this is when at the end of a video game when when you you either level up or or cash out and i think he's cashing out so and of course they didn't publish it but I turned out to be right, but not because I'm a futurist, right? That's sort of the difference. It's, it's predictive, but it's more predictive by looking at what's, what is rather than trying to guess um,
4: what's out there. So presentist, not futurist, but when it comes to the impact of these emerging digital technologies, would you describe yourself as an optimist or a pessimist?
0: Neither. Um, again, an optimist or a pessimist, it's funny, it's, it's interesting, the the construction. An optimist or a pessimist is always, I'm optimistic about how this is going to work out, or pessimistic about how this is going to work out. I would say I'm frustrated, right? I'm hopeful, but frustrated. I'm always hopeful that human beings are going to find a way out of the messes that they're in. But I'm really frustrated that we're using technology on people, right? (laughs) We're using tech on people instead of giving technologies to people with some, with some faith in their ability to use them. That we're surrendering this, this digital renaissance to really to the needs of the market. when i look at the people running the biggest media companies today it's as if they they think of themselves as these demigods who, who should be you know uh, in charge of everything from you know covid and farming to society and education and politics and it's like wait a minute to what end, you know, what are your values? What what ethics and, and and economics and and anthropology classes did you take in college, if any, before you dropped out in, uh, in freshman year? So uh, I, I kind of look at it that way. Douglas Rushkoff is our guest in
4: this month's In Depth with us for the next two hours to talk about his books, some 20 books over the past 30 years. Take us back to the early 1990s, take us back mm. to Siberia. What were your expectations at the time of this emerging net, as it was known?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I saw the internet, the emerging internet, and this was before the internet, you know, the emerging computer networks as part of a larger cultural phenomenon. We, we had just been through, you know, a uh, um, we just had CB radio, even, which was kind of the first sort of citizens media movement, in at least in my lifetime, you know, since ham radio, I guess. So CB radio had happened, fax machines, the beginning of interactivity, our television screens, which had always been completely passive monitors. We were using joysticks to move things around. We were playing Pong. We had fax machines that we could start to send each other messages. People were walking around with these Phones rather than having to be home to get a call, this mobile phones. Uh, there, there were, there was new physics and chaos math and new understandings of how the world worked. There was electronic music and kids throwing raves with nobody on the stage, just the sort of entertainment out in the middle of a, of a field. There was a psychedelics revival where people were looking at kind of reengineering their own uh, cognitive apparatus, you know, willfully by themselves. And it seemed to me that all these things and the internet were part of a new culture, a new, yeah, West Coast kind of West Coast psychedelic cyberpunk DIY whole earth kind of uh, uh, uh culture that might shake things up. So, and, and me, I mean, I was a, an East Coast educated theater director, right? And I love theater. I was an artsy person, but at the mo, at the time, I was really fed up with how elitist and expensive theater had become, how predictable the plays were. Everything had a beginning, a middle, and an end. I felt really stifled. And this internet thing, was surprising. You know, I'm sure like you, I was raised in a world where people who liked computers were like little geek people with pocket protectors in high school and they the kids who, who, who turned in the hallways at like little right angles, there was a certain type. And by the late 80s, I was finding out that my weirdest, artsiest, most psychedelic friends from college going out to Silicon Valley to go work for you know Apple and Sun and Intel and it was confusing why were the weird people working with computers so I went out there and started covering it really as a journalist and I saw this very different computer story, a very different technology story, which was that these folks would, you know, be working at Intel or Northrop Grumman during the day and going home to Oakland and scraping the buds off peyote cactuses and tripping at night and creating fractal images that were being shown at Grateful Dead shows the next weekend. So it was like, Something was happening that was different. And uh, the first book I wrote about this, you know, uh, Siberia, Life in the Trenches of Hyperspace, was really looking at all of these different threads of culture as part of this same new cultural assertion that we could redesign reality, and all of these different things, whether it was fantasy role playing games where kids were, I know people were scared it was Satanist, but it really wasn't, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, where kids, instead of watching a movie, would create their own story together. You know, it was this sort of choose your own adventure, hypertext reality that, that no one was used to yet the idea that you could, you know, read a story in text on a computer and click on a word and choose where that takes you, you know, or you could, you know, open a drawer and look inside and, and, and go in your own pathway. That was, that was very new. And to many of us, it, it seemed to to uh, be be kind of an omen or a precursor to the idea that we were going to move into a much more um, deliberate and interesting society, one that was much less passive and much more of a of a choose your own adventure in spirituality, in politics, in government, in education, in arts, in in all forms of human activity. So, how did we get from?
4: from that culture, that cyberpunk, psychedelic culture, that moment that you describe, to survival of the richest, the escape fantasies of tech billionaires?
0: I mean, there's a few ways to look at it. It's funny, in the the last couple of pages of of my book, Siberia, interestingly enough, and I know these are book people, Siberia, my book, was canceled by Bantam Doubleday Dell in 1992. Because they thought the internet was going to be over by 1993 when the book was supposed to come out, right? I have the letter from the editor saying we think it's a passing fad, and, and we, you're too late on it, right? Is that framed somewhere? <laughs> what is that letter framed? I, should frame somewhere? It. I know, no, I've got it in a drawer with a bunch of with all the other rejections of the of the book. But uh, so it's funny, so. Uh, and by the time um i was i was uh, uh putting putting it together so it was it was you know 3 4 years in the making rather than one or two um by the time i was putting the finishing touches on the the last draft for for harper who ended up publishing it um wired magazine had just launched And Wired magazine came along and told a very different story about what was happening on the internet. What Wired was saying was, yes, this is a whole big thing, but what this thing actually is, is good for business, that the internet is going to create more surface area on the market, that thanks to the internet, the NASDAQ stock exchange would be able to grow exponentially uninterrupted Forever, right, then that I understand what they were saying but they they looked at digital technology as like the ultimate derivative. But it, the, the, the way finance works, really, is by kind of going meta, moving one level above what's actually happening. So there's a transaction between people, and then you can buy stock in that. So you're one level removed. Now, thanks to computers, you don't just have to buy the stock. You could buy a derivative, which is one level removed from that, or a derivative of a derivative, and so on and so on and so on. Or you could look at um, colonialism, only as so much territory on the planet – But thanks to the Internet, we're going to get infinite real estate, an infinite number of websites so that the markets can, again, expand onto new surface, new territory, virtual territory. So Wired came and said, it's interesting what's happening, but what's happening is actually a financial phenomenon, a business phenomenon. And once business people came in, and this was my fear at the end of that book, I said, you know, there's a window of opportunity for us to seize this cultural phenomenon as what it is, as a new experiment in the collective human imagination, in a new kind of a commons of ideas and an unfolding of human culture. But there's some folks who want to re, who want to enclose this commons as a business phenomenon and turn it into something else and to make it more about profit and exponential growth. And I'm not quite sure what that will do to the culture. And it turns out what it did was kind of killed the culture, because if you can look at the early Internet it was about kind of exploring the, the infinite possibilities of a connected culture. What does the connected human imagination do? You know, What can we do when we're connected by these machines that we can't do when we're totally alone? What happens when we share all these processing, uh, processing cycles in, in these giant collective projects? We flipped that. Once you're betting on the internet as a stock, you're not looking for how do you increase possibility, you're looking for how do you increase probability. Right? Think of it. Once you've bet on something, what do you want? The The highest probability that your bet will come true. If you bet on AOL, you bet on CompuServe, you bet on the web, whatever you bet on, you want that to have the highest probability of working. So instead of using technology to increase creative possibility, we started using technology on People to increase their probability. And this you could see it 1993, 94, 95. What we started to use on the web were words like stickiness. The idea the object of the game was to create a website that was sticky, meaning people would get to your website but they couldn't leave. They even had a an ad for one of the companies that helps you make your website sticky that showed users stuck on a piece of fly paper, as if they were flies, you know, a a fly strip. As if that's The happy user, right? Because they're stuck on what you're doing. We used a metric called eyeball hours. And that eyeball hours were the number of hours that a human eyeball would spend looking at your monitor. Wired announced that we were living in what they called the attention economy. And people who weren't paying attention were the enemy. It's, it's interesting. After they came up with the term attention economy uh, is when we started to see all the diagnoses of, of uh, attention deficit disorder and all the prescriptions for getting people to pay better attention to these websites, where I started to write about how, well, I wonder if a uh, A shortened attention span might be a defense mechanism against a world where they're creating sticky websites and using every tool at their disposal. Behavioral finance, the uh, slot machine algorithms, you know, there's a division at Stanford called captology, which is about how do you capture human attention and modify human behavior online. So that really, for me, was the turn when people, especially people in the technology industry, began to think of their users more the way a a heroin dealer thinks of the users. How do we addict them and how do we control them? So what is the mindset? Ah, well, the mindset is the idea. I mean, it's a few things. The the easiest way uh, that I can describe the mindset is this idea that you can earn enough money uh, to insulate yourself from the damage you're creating by earning money in that way. Or you can develop enough technology to correct for all the problems you created with the technology that you just that you just made, right? So the mindset is a a Silicon Valley belief that with more tech and more money, they can solve for anything. It's a kind of a, a techno-solutionist understanding of the world where human beings are the problem and technology is the solution. So they tend to be libertarian. They understand human relationships as purely a market phenomenon. They tend to be afraid of women and nature and black people and indigenous people. They tend to want to own everything. The object of the game is to see one's own contributions as unique. It's your own IP. It's without precedence. It's It's an urge to kind of neutralize the unknown by by dominating it and and deanimating it. It, It's when you hear them talk about, you know, self-sovereignty and progress and increasing choice and uh, uh, somehow starting over. You know, there's a there's a it's funny. There's a place near uh, Solana, California, where a bunch of the tech bros want to build a new city, a new perfect city that they're going to live in. and it's renewable and 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 uses the best energy and has computerized stacks for education and religion and traffic and autonomous it's a perfect thing but it's like going to Mars or going to the dark side of the moon or moving to New Zealand or Alaska. They need to do it. You know, the Latin word would be ex nihilo, as if from scratch. They need to begin. It's this colonizer's urge to get to a new territory, pretend there's no real life or humans there, and then start over completely. You know, and when you when you when you talk to these guys whether it's you know, you know Zuckerberg or Musk or Thiel or Bezos, they all share these same understandings of human beings as the masses as low and them as sort of one level Above. You know, Mark Zuckerberg wants to go to the metaverse. Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Peter Thiel talks about going from zero to one, right? Living one level, one order of magnitude above everybody else. And that's really that's the mindset. It really peaks in this almost eugenic idea um called effective altruism where they believe that it's okay to be kind of an awful person now as long as you earn a lot of money and give some of the money back it's a kind of a a weird you know jeremy bentham utilitarianism on digital psychedelic steroids where they believe that i mean and this is how far the mindset goes it's it's this tech worship this this Hatred of the human of the body of of everything earthly that they think that in the future there will be you know hundreds of trillions of post human artificial intelligences spread throughout the galaxy, that will launch these things, maybe part biology, part digital, part silicon, whatever they are. They're these post-human entities all over the universe. And because there's so many of them, their total happiness matters more than the happiness of the 8 billion kind of larval human maggots that happen to be alive on the mother nest right now. And that's a very dangerous way to look, that the lives of the people today matter less than this future of, of trillions of little robot consciousnesses. And that's part of why I'm not a futurist, right? You can use math and logic and eugenics and, 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 and a certain kind of scientific rigor to say, that's true. They do matter more. Therefore, let's just invest in our Bitcoin, save ourselves, let the people die and get the rockets to the next planet. But it's ignoring the present. Right. And <laughs> I have much more faith in, in the reality of the present, the eight billion people alive today who actually matter. Right. And, and then we would make very different decisions if we thought the people who are alive today are what matter rather than um, the robots in the fantasy future. For a lot more on The
4: Mindset, the book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of Tech Billionaires. It's Douglas Roshkoff's latest book, 20 books over 30 years, nonfiction and fiction books as well. We're talking about all of them in in in-depth this month and asking you to join the conversation to do that. The phone lines are open 202-748-8200 for those living in the eastern and central time zones, 202-748-8201 if you're in the mountain or pacific time zones. If you want to send us a text, 202-748-8903. If you do, please include your name and where you're from. uh, And also on social media, uh, it's at BookTV on all our social media platforms. Go ahead and send your questions in. Go ahead and start calling in as folks are calling in, Mr. Rushkoff. uh, So you talk about the mindset. What is Team Human? And I don't mean the podcast or, or the book, but I mean the concept
0: of Team Human. The concept of Team Human actually came up when I was, it was a long time ago. I was on a panel with a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who's a brilliant guy. He's one of the chief scientists at Google. And he was telling the story about how evolution is really a matter of information finding more complex homes. So information like the atom, then the molecule, then the one-celled organism, then the real organism, then human culture. But as computers become uh, uh, more complex, capable of handling more complexity than humans and human culture, then information will migrate to them and they will... Prove to be our evolutionary successors. And once that happens, human beings have to pass the evolutionary torch to the robots, to the artificial intelligences, and accept our own inevitable replacement and extinction. And I was so upset by that. And I said, I don't know. Uh, uh, I think human beings have some qualities that artificial intelligences and things raised on these binary logics um, may never have. Human beings can live in that in-between space, between the yes and the no. A human being can sustain paradox over time without the need to resolve it to one sort of answer or another. We can look at a problem as something to sustain rather than something to solve. Uh, I remember I said, a human being can watch a David Lynch movie, not understand what it means, and still experience that as pleasure, right? What is that? That human beings are special and we deserve a place in the digital future. And he said, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're human, right? Like it was an act of hubris. And I said, okay, fine. Guilty. I'm on team human, right? That's when the term actually came up for me. I'm on team human. Guilty as charged. I admit it. I'm a human and I'm going to um, I'm going to uh, fight for the right for other other of my species to have a place on this on this on this so, planet. But then the more I thought about it, the idea of team human, I realized, you know, it goes against the mindset to call. Humans, a team. The mindset is about the sovereign individual, right? The man emperor, the, the Zuckerberg who thinks of himself as Augustus Caesar. That's his goal, right? The, the, the single lord over everyone that. That idea of, of team human is arguing that no, 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 being human is a team sport. That evolution is not the story of the survival of the fittest individual. If you actually read the Darwin, if you read the book, right? We're book TV. Read the book. What you'll see is. Page after page, this guy is marveling at the way species collaborate and cooperate to ensure mutual survival. They do that, you know, within the species and as an interspecies species uh, uh, coordination. So if human beings are, and it's arguably we're not, but if human beings are the most evolved species, it's because we evolved the most complex methods of, of collaborating and cooperating with each other. And a lot of these are very subtle. Right, A lot of them are, are uh, when you're in real life with another human being, you see whether their pupils are getting larger or smaller as you speak. Are they taking you in or are they rejecting you? Is their breathing synchronizing with yours? Is Are they making the micro nod motions with their head or micro negative motions? You can't see any of this on Zoom or Skype or on a text message. So we're trying to Uh, conduct a very complex and difficult human society in a world that's not letting us get the social cues that we need for the mirror neurons in our brains to fire, for the oxytocin to go through our blood, if you're online and someone says they agree with you, but you don't get the biological feedback, you can't help but be suspicious of them. Every time someone agrees with you online, what actually happens is the reverse effect in your body. Your body says, wait a minute, they say they agreed with me, but I didn't get it in my body. So so it, it, it generates distrust rather than trust. So team human is really about saying, wait a minute, we've got to uh, 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 reemploy and retrieve these great mechanisms for, for working and being together. It's kind of almost like putting the social back into socialism. I don't really care about the ism. I care about people knowing their neighbors and understanding that this, this whole human project is not about who gets to escape to their bunker, but how do we do this together?
4: So I, I wonder how you think this emerging technology fits into Team Human. This is Mark Zuckerberg from the Meta Connect 2023 event this week, uh, previewing upcoming AI and artificial intelligence technologies. Here's one of those technologies that he showed off.
6: Our industry over the coming decades is gonna be, how do we unify these experiences of the physical that we have with this vibrant digital world to create something that is more coherent and just better than anything that we have today. Now, in the future, I think not too far from now, you're going to walk into a room and there are going to be as many holograms of digital things for you to interact with as there are physical objects. I mean, think about all the, the things that are physically there that don't actually need to be physical things, right? All the paper, the... You know, the media, the games, the art, your workstation, any screen. It can all be interactive holograms. You know, think about going and and hanging out with your friends. Um, You know, pretty soon I I think we're gonna be at a point where you're gonna be there physically with some of your friends and others will be there digitally as avatars, as holograms, and they'll feel just as present as everyone else. Or, you know, you'll walk into a meeting And you'll sit down at a table and, you know, you'll be there with your, you know, there will be people who are there physically and people who are there digitally as holograms. But also sitting around the table with you are going to be a bunch of AIs who are embodied as holograms who are helping you get different stuff done, too.
0: Mr. Rushkoff, on on that technology that he previewed. Well, the interesting thing is the word unify, right? The object of the game for him is to unify the real world with the digital world so that digital can continue kind of colonizing the the world that we're in. And it's that unification that may be the problem. So for me, when he describes uh, being, you know, hanging out with your friends and some of them are virtual, that makes me feel sad compared to when he says, oh, you could be in a meeting and some of the people in the meeting are virtual. That, I'm like, who cares? Interesting, right? So for me, the technologies are really great for increasing our utility value, which is, I understand, you know, and since the industrial age, people have been measured in terms of their utility value, how much work can be done for how much money do we have to fly this person to this place to have the meeting? I get that. But the idea of not getting to meet in real life, even if it seems easier on the surface, it never actually is. He says all this stuff, all these things that don't need to be physical things Well, in order to get to the place where you don't have the physical thing, you need to have a lot more physical things involved, right? So in order to make the AI and the laser projecting holograph whatever machine it is that's going to create the virtual avatar in the room. You've got to send kids into the mines in Africa to get the rare earth metals to make the thing. You've got to put huge factories around water to get cobalt out and pollution out You and pollution in. You've got to create silicon wafers. You need energy and solar panels up the wazoo that, yes, they get their energy from the sun, but how is the solar panel made and where is it disposed? So So what he's actually describing is not less physical matter being used, but more physical matter being used to then deny the human beings of actual actual physical presence. You know, the 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 avatar is a great substitute. Grandma's in the Netherlands and the baby is in Cleveland. They can see each other. That's beautiful. Right. Or someone's you know, stuck in a, a, a hospital bed or is a paraplegic and now can have a virtual experience of togetherness in a picnic that they wouldn't be able to get to. That's beautiful. But for people who could actually be together, the complexity of human relationship, the complexity of, say, God, just imagine the complexity of a mother nursing the baby. Right. So we could get a virtual bottle and the virtual mother so she could be at work and then turn and that you're going to be missing something. And if the virtual baby is missing something from or from the, the, the virtually nursing baby is missing something from the mother, then I would argue that I'm missing something. If you're not at my house watching the game with me, but it's your avatar on the couch watching the game. It's not, it's not the same that we're denying it. We're turning the game into. Again, it's like work or the utility value of the game. We got the presence. The other thing that's interesting is these technologies, as he describes them, it's like you wear your glasses, so you'll never be in the position of seeing someone on the street and not remembering what their name is. I mean, and it's uncomfortable, right? You meet someone on the street and they say, oh, hey, Doug, how are you? And I'm like, if I had the Ray-Ban glasses, it goes, oh, that is Doris. Oh, hey, Doris. Who's Doris? Doris is the person who the. Okay, you know <laughs> you met in 1993. Oh. Um, so it'll tell me all those things, and I can fake rapport with this person I didn't know, um, which is again, it's moving me into bizarre, uh, uh, almost kind of a, a, a dishonest relationship with my world, and and it's wondering what mattered, what really matters that that I remembered that person's name and where is it. If it was a sales connect, again, at business, then it's good. We used to have these things like constant contact, these databases. So, you know, someone calls you and then their profile comes up and you go, oh, how's your wife, Mabel? You know, and you know that because it came up on the computer screen when they called you. Oh, great. It's a fake business relationship trying to sell mattresses to Macy's. OK, fake that relationship. But in the real world, um, to be burdened with this sort of this sense of a uh, a. Uh, data as part of our our interaction, and then a world where who paid for the data? I'm walking down the street, I'm going to pick a restaurant. Who is paid to be in Mark Zuckerberg's virtual uh, uh, augmented reality world? The restaurant that didn't pay is not even going to exist, right? And that might be the best pizzeria on the block.
4: About 30 minutes into our two hour interview with Douglas Rushkoff this morning. It's our in-depth program, looking for your calls, looking for your questions, and plenty of calls for you this morning, sir. This is Jim in California. It's uh, good morning, still in California, Jim. You're on with Douglas Rushkoff. Jim, are you with us? Then we'll try Michael in Broward County, Florida. Jim's hang on the line. We'll try to get to you. Uh Michael, go ahead. We'll work on those calls. uh let's try one more. I think we do have Julie on the line, Minneapolis, Minnesota, like I said, a lot of calls for you, sir, so we can keep rotating through them if they're not there. but Julie, Minneapolis, go ahead.
1: I am here. go ahead, and um, I'm glad to be here i've I've heard yes, I've heard um, Mr. Rishka say a number of things and uh, they've fired me up. You, You, sir, are passionate. You are insightful. You have a great many opinions. You have a great many questions and a lot of ideas, which could be molded and discussed by people who agree with you and people who oppose you into actual policies and means of achieving progress. Now, my question is, you write books, you teach, you appear here. How do you actually get people involved and talking to one another? How do we, because I think I share some of those characteristics and some of your thoughts, how do we begin to, I think at one point you said something about we had an opportunity to take control of the digital age, and instead we ceded it to business, much as our universities have ceded education to business. Um, How do we retract that? and say, no, we want it back. We're capable of doing this.
4: Julie, thanks for the call.
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's really where I'm at too, asking asking precisely that question. I mean, I think the first thing that I realized for me was that the construction of how do we get people to dot, dot, dot is a, a, a potentially hazardous construction in itself that's sort of the way the tech bros think of us. How do we get people to do this? How do we get people to do that? And once I'm thinking about getting people to do something, I'm putting myself in some superior place, right? And, and we get into almost like television style, uh, uh, you know, uh, influence, if you become an influence peddler, how do we influence society? How do we change people? Um, because I know how people would be better if they were doing this instead of that. So I, I tried to move away from that as the way I think about it and rather thinking about it on how do I engender an environment in which people feel welcome to dot, dot, dot. So, you know, feel welcome really to to socialize and care for each other and nurture each other rather than compete with each other. And so I broke that down, actually, and this is probably going to be a next book. But I broke it down into kind of four... um four ways of sort of changing the environment or changing the register in which we're operating. You know, the first one is I'm calling it denaturalized power. But all I'm really trying to do is help people recognize how many things in our world are social constructions and not conditions of nature anything you know money you know this this th- these bills this is not money these are this is paper that we use to represent money in our society you know when I, I go on uh, you know c n n or somewhere and they're asking me about oh ai and the and the unemployment problem it's like well. Exactly why is unemployment a problem? You know, when was employment invented? What was it for? What's the difference between employment and work? When did people work for themselves in small businesses? When were they forced to start doing wage labor instead of the kinds of uh, uh work that they used to do? So it's really just challenging these underlying assumptions of how things work, which then leads to the second one, which is triggering agency. Now, I'm trying to help um people feel like they've got more agency, more authority over what they're doing. You know, for me, that was the digital revolution did that for me when I realized that that I could save a file, not just as a read only file that people looked at, but as a read write file that other people could edit. And why was so much of the world established as read-only, you know, television and money and religion, why, are, why isn't it up for discussion? Why shouldn't it be up for discussion? And then the third one was, if we're going to do that, once you have agency and you want to change things, you need other people, right? So the third one was to re-socialize people, to help people feel um, uh, less afraid of each other. You know, the, the the great example I like to use is if, if you need to drill a hole in the wall, you know, and you don 't have a drill in America. what most people will do is go to the home depot buy a minimum viable product drill right and use it once to drill the hole, leave it in the garage, and then it 'll probably never work again it won 't recharge. so what have you done and you throw it away you 've sent a kid into the cave for the rare earth metal for the renewable battery and the in the thing you 've used it once you 've created all this carbon you, 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 you throw it away and then it 's sitting on a on a toxic waste heap where some other kid's going to be looking at it trying to find the the recyclable Parts inside it, where what you could have done was walk down the block and knocked on Bob's door and said, Bob, can I borrow your drill? Right? But why don't we do that? Why are we so scared of what we're going to owe something to Bob? Because you're going to have a barbecue next week. And if you haven't and Bob sees it and he lent you the drill, he's going to expect to be invited over. Well, maybe you want Bob over there. It's going to be fun. And if Bob comes over, the other neighbors are going to smell it and then think, oh, wait a minute, why did he invite Bob and not us? Worst case, you have a block wide barbecue party. But that's the nightmare right now. We have to look at why, you know, kind of why that is. And the last thing I was looking at is is kind of cultivating awe. You know, it's really what is that party and why are we so resistant to it? Why are we resistant to, to the state of awe? Because when you have a state of awe, whether it's looking at a canyon or enjoying a party with a bunch of other people, you experience the world is bigger than yourself. And it ends up having, you know, it has a cytokine response in your body, your immune system gets better, you're more generous for days later. So the experience of awe seems to be a kind of a natural, important um, part of human health. And you don't get it with the VR goggles, you get it um, in communion with other people or nature or the expansiveness of of reality. So I'm really looking at those. Um, how do we help people feel um, less encumbered, less locked in um, uh, to, to, you know, sort of the, the, the status quo um, institutions and beliefs and more willing to, again, move into that space between the one and the zero where uh, life actually happens. Let me come back to Jim
4: in California. He, he was the first person to call in as soon as we opened up the phone lines. And I think he's there now. Jim, thanks for waiting.
3: Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, Mr. Rushkoff, my question is totally uh, different than what you've been going on, but I see in your uh, resume that you went to Hollywood, you were uh, an apprentice director with uh, Brian De Palma on a major movie, which was a huge flop, and apparently it turned you off on movies and Hollywood. I'd just like your comments on that, if you could, and on your thoughts on movies today, your thoughts on movies in the past, the directors and movies that influenced you when you were younger. Um, it's an area I'm very interested in. I'm a, I'm a movie buff, so.
0: Um, Jim,
7: I'd thanks. Like your thanks for yeah, the
0: call. That's beautiful. You know, I was a. Um I mean, the real story, I mean, this is book TV. We can talk for real. You have novelists on. The real story, I was a theater director from the time I was like 11 or 12 years old. I was directing plays. I directed plays in junior high school. I directed all the plays in high school. Theater. I went to went to Princeton and did English and theater, then went to CalArts and did theater. And while I was at CalArts, I was going to drive across country. I was driving across country with my best friend, and he fell asleep at the wheel, and we hit a tree, and he was impaled and died next to me and i haven't actually told this story publicly it's weird um book tv welcome um he died next to me and all of a sudden i was like theater is so ethereal it dies it disappears it's this thing where you had to be there and i decided i'm gonna do film because you know what i mean it was sort of that existential moment i want to do film because it's going to stay it's going to be there it's going to be after i die after these things um so then I took, um, film with Sandy McKendrick at CalArts, the, the sweet smell of success, man in the white suit. Um, I w- was with, um, Jim Mangold, James Mangold, who does, uh, uh, do the Wolverine movie and, and Ford versus Ferrari, a great director. He was, uh, we worked together there a lot. And, um, I was making films then, you know, like theater. Right. So I liked Jim Jarmish, Vim Vendors, uh, uh, Werner Herzog. I liked, um, Bob Fosse's um, Cabaret and Lenny. Um, so I liked, uh, uh, My Dinner with Andre, right? So there was a, I liked kind of theater films of the Vanya that, 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 uh, uh, Anthony, Gre- Anthony Gregory did. I liked, um, theatrical film. And then, yeah, then I got that uh Brian De Palma apprentice gig so I'm going to be his apprentice on this on this big movie and they're spending at the time it was like 50 million dollars on a movie that was just not thought out it was just a, a kind of a very thin satire and and I was I I did the New York part of it but then when they went to LA to do the um the studio part I actually dropped out And and returned to theater at that point and then got tired of theater because of how uh, I was supposed to do a production of Three Penny Opera and the cheapest seat was going to be 40 bucks. And, you know, as a kind of a narco kind of Marxist lefty San Francisco mime troupe kind of thinker. It was like, I'm not going to charge $40 for the cheapest seat of three penny opera, which is a Brechtian kind of, you know, Marxist play, Um, which is what then I turned to the internet thinking that the internet was going to be the people's medium, right? I want to get away from all that commercial theater and I'm going to go to the internet, which is going to be the countercultural anti-business pro-human. I mean, it was for a moment. Uh, it's going to be that that alternative. In terms of the movies that I would say are the the, the best, I mean, maybe I'm typical, but um, you know, Kubrick and Lynch uh, have do do things in movies that are be. I mean, Kubrick does something with movies that is beyond what people realize is quite happening. You know, he these these he makes movies that are all about inviting. Multiple interpretation. It's as if the movie has a plot, but it doesn't really have that plot. That you could almost project anything, anything onto that plot. Not anything, but many different things onto that plot, um as you want to. So there is much about yourself um, as the movie, and I like what he does. I like his his hallways that imitate Escher. You know that <laughs> an Escher print that he's really playing with um with, with illusion and reality. I I liked um David Lynch's um work, you know, because again it's about uh, uh opening questions and I find I'm annoyed with guys like um nothing against their film but I get annoyed with like the more uh JJ Abrams Christopher Nolan style movies which which do similar things but always with an answer. There's always that you figure it out. And to me, the beauty of film when it's working is it it opens you it it opens outward, you know, that the the answer isn't um, the answer. There's 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 many. It's it's an object. It works more like, you know, I mean, don't don't tell them I said this, but it works more like, say, Torah or something that that it 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 has a a mythic level of of uh, 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 experiential value, but. What it means to you could be different every time you go through it.
4: Uh, thanks for sharing that story uh, about your friend and and, and the accident. Uh, for viewers who, who don't know, you have a podcast, th- over 300 episodes of Team Human podcast. You've got mm. 20 books. I just wonder why you think you haven't shared that story publicly before.
0: Because um, I don't know. When you share a story about the death of your friend, it's like, I don't know. It feels a little like it's begging for sympathy, you know, uh, uh, it's like a cheap shot. Like, oh, you know, you're talking about that sad thing. Um, and maybe also because, um, I don't know, it's, it, it takes a lot of years to move through trauma. You know, I remember, um, uh there's a uh, back from my theater days Stanislavski had this thing called sense memory and you're supposed to sense memory is if you have a scene where you like have to cry or be upset or whatever it is in a in a play what you do is you recall when you've had a similar emotion and then like think about that and then like think to activate that emotion in the scene at least you do that in the rehearsals but I remember our teacher told us you know there's a rule that it has to be from at least 6 years ago right otherwise you haven't processed the, the trauma or whatever, and in such a way that it's actually useful, it'll end up being um, non-useful. And I think maybe it's now, you know, whatever this is 30 years later um, I I'm kind of distant enough from it that when it came up, it didn't have the um, the texture that made it feel inappropriate to to bring, to bring to bear. And also because of the audience, you know, I mean, I know some of the audiences is, is, you know, whoever is, is there, but I'm thinking of book TV is largely these are a lot of these people are book people. And I don't get to talk to book people that much, you know, and another author, but book people are sorry, we go through life differently than other people, you know, Book people understand how to engage with an idea or an emotion over an extended period of time, you know, whatever book you're reading. You know what I mean? It's a different thing than um, remote control media. So I kind of felt um, it was both safer and more appropriate to bring up um, the, the processing of trauma um, for people who write, you know, for people who write and people who read. Let
4: me let you chat with more of those book people. Plenty of them waiting to chat with you again in California. Oscar, you're on with Douglas Rushkoff.
2: Hi, hi. Hey. I'll just get straight to the, um, uh, the 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 question I wanna I wanna ask. Um, how? I, I thank you for your books, by the way. It's you know great. Um, how can we get? How can uh, How can we get this? Uh, um, Take an aspect of you know the like you have a, a way of really uh, expressing how uh, you know uh, the big picture a big picture of things going on, and and it's it, it's great because I like to take an aspect of that for example like capitalism okay the, the capitalism it, I mean it, it it's done a lot of great things but it, it a lot of people use it as a self defining term practically you know I mean it, it, it granted it put us on the map. But, you know, uh, it how can you use um like I I believe that capitalism is, is is great, it did a lot of good things but but people just strongly, you know, side with it, but they don't they don't see how I, I've often believed that that it capitalism unchecked does starts going bad. And it starts doing some damage, like, you know, like, like the big corporations and things like that. And let's
4: let's pick up on that, because that that's a a theme of of several of Mr. Rushkoff's books.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, the the first book I wrote really on capitalism was called Life Inc. How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. That's the one that got me on The Colbert Show, which is, you know, something in itself. Um, And that, that I was really looking at. Where did capitalism come from? You know where did the corporation come from? Where did central currency come from? And I traced it back to the late Middle Ages. You know there was a there was actually the growth of a new peer-to-peer economy, and right after the Crusades, there was the marketplace that they learned how to do from the bazaar in the the Moorish countries. They brought it back, and people were trading, and we had a new middle class. They were women were taller at any time in 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 the late Middle Ages in that market than than they were until the 1980s in England. It was a really successful thing but the aristocracy got poor as the middle class got wealthy. So they came up with two great ideas. One was central currency that said, you're not allowed to have a transaction unless you borrow money from the central treasury at interest. So now, because there's interest built into the economy, the economy has to grow just to stay the same. It worked fine for colonialism. As long as there's new places, as long as you can grow and keep growing and growing faster and faster, that works. And the second one, which I alluded to earlier, was the chartered monopoly that said that you're not allowed to do business in a particular industry unless you have a charter from the king. So you had to have a monopoly charter to make shoes and everyone else who was a shoemaker now had to be an employee for the shoe company. And that's come down to us today as corporate capitalism that we don't even question, even a, a, a nice president like Biden talks about, well, we've got to have the GDP grow by three to 5% every year. Why do we need the economy to grow? What does that have to do with actually feeding people? Nothing, right? It's, it's in some ways, it's the opposite. It's about balance sheets. And what it does is it favors increasingly abstract economic instruments. It's why, you know, derivatives are valued more than stocks. At this sort of end-stage capitalism, we live in a world where in 2013, the New York Stock Exchange was purchased by its derivatives exchange. Think about that a sec. The New York Stock Exchange, which is an abstraction of the real market, which you could argue is itself an abstraction of the exchange of actual human need, was consumed by its own abstraction. Right. This is this is the way it goes. And that's why we end up in this world with kind of tech billionaires who are looking at what's the next level of abstraction. In some ways, the what we could think of as the A.I. craze and the digital craze is all about looking for how do I go meta? How do I go abstract on reality itself and be one of the robots, be one of the derivatives, be one of those things, because who wants to be a little human, right? This is, you know, Jack Welch, General Electric style capitalism. He's the guy when he was head of GE, he realized one day, huh, I make less money making And selling a washing machine to you than I do lending you the money to buy the washing machine. So that's when he sold the productive assets of GE, the actual making of stuff and turned GE into a financial services company because the abstraction makes more money than the actual work, right? But, and it worked really well until about 2007, eight when the financial crisis happened and they had no more, um, they had no more productive assets, but that's, um, that's the tendency. I mean, you're right. That's the tendency of capitalism, which is why it works great to a point. You know, it works great for colonial empires. If you're not looking at, you know, who are the people they're enslaving and what land is being taken away and what are you, you know, dispossessing and labor and all that, it still can work, you know, and there's, there's more balanced forms of capitalism that we could, that we could use. But when I tell that story about the drill, to people. And I say, look, if everybody on the block, what if we're borrowing drills from each other, or we only have one or two lawnmowers on the block instead of every house having their own lawnmower. And we share the lawnmower because you only need a lawnmower two or three hours a week. And it's that much less production and pollution and spending. You don't have to earn as much money and all that. Someone invariably gets up at the end and says, well, yeah, but what about the lawnmower company? What about the people who work at the lawnmower? What about the people who have stock shares in their retirement plan for the lawnmower company? What are you going to do about them? And that's the, if I'm allowed to say, it the kind of ass backwardsness of starting with capitalism as the underlying premise of our society rather than thinking of the economy as something that's supposed to serve us rather than us supposed to serve um, to serve the economy.
4: We're about an hour into our two hour in-depth interview with Douglas Rushkoff this morning on in-depth and a question coming in from Pearl City, Hawaii. Perhaps a good Mm. question halfway through our interview. Uh, This is from Tim, who says, do we exist within a simulation and what test could we devise to prove or disprove it?
0: Um, If. We don't live in a digital simulation by, uh, you know, created by a a Martian graduate student of the future, right? Let's say we live in a Jewish or Christian or Buddhist reality. What would they say we are, right? (laughs) What would they say this is, right? They would say this is Mara right this is the illusion right and there's something there's something else going on here so one way or another we live in a simulation because we don't even see what's going on i mean look back at your your kant and your hegel you know and phenomenology and all we have sensory organs that are trying to uh create a picture of what is going on here but that's all we get anyway right we are we are uh uh just sensory organs trying to process based on what we see. So I, I, I don't think it really, uh, finally, I um, mean, the question doesn't matter, but no, I don't believe we are in, you know, like in Westworld, one of, you know, a, a, a million simulations that are being run by someone to figure out, you know, <laughs> how society works. If we are iterating, I would think it's, it's much closer to, uh, uh, to karmic iteration um, of, of civilizations over time than it would be um, running, running, running simulations. On the, on the sensory experience,
4: a minute ago you were talking about the importance of the experience of awe. I wanna go to your 1999 book, Coercion, uh, and talk about the difference between the experience of awe and spectacle, and how you define Mm. spectacle.
0: Yeah, I mean, spectacle is more like a a Nuremberg rally, or a Trump rally, or uh, uh, these days, an NFL football game, where the energy of a crowd and many of the, the features of awe are leveraged for a purpose, you know? So there's, there's in-betweens, right? Like walking into a great cathedral as a Catholic person and doing mass in there. It's sort of a combination, right? There was some architect dude who made this inspiration machine, you know, with the organ and the lights and the, the stained glass and the arches and all to, to uh, generate, uh, an experience of awe. If you go to a rave and they put the lights and the music at 120 beats a second and beautiful young people around dancing, half dressed and all, you know, like in a in that scene in the, in the matrix. That's at a rave that they have. Um, There's, there's in between, but for me, um, spectacle is really less about inviting true participation and more about, um, stoking the rage of a crowd against. A unified enemy. So in that the Jets game, it's like, oh well, the Dolphins. You know, uh, let's get the Dolphins, and then you can use that to sell airline tickets, to sell steak from Outback. You know, to do whatever you want. You take that uh, that 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 warlike rage enthusiasm thing, um, or against a particular racial group, or whatever it might be, or or against Democrats or or whoever. Um, so. Uh, uh, a spectacle is more a a designed um, for me anyway. It's a more designed experience in order to focus the energy of the crowd onto a named enemy in most so, cases. Whereas as awe is uh, uh, more about uh, kind of breaking people out of uh, their their uh, uh, trap. Their, their their the, the trap. Of the illusion of individuality and letting them experience themselves as part of something much, much larger. You know, it's just a matter of then don't name that large thing for them. Don't say, now you're in the army of, you know, this or the <laughs> the group of that. It's that's why, you know, when I was playing with Spectacle, I was calling it Team Human, because it seemed open enough that any person, you're in Team Human. That's, you know, but it's not Team Human like against Team Squirrel, right? <laughs> <laughs> against team tree it's uh it's just team human as this is uh our this is the way we experience uh our perspective on on nature and everything else so
4: from coercion uh this uh this sentence think of any great spectacle as having three main acts first unify the crowd second stoke their passion and third speak as god or nature help me understand that that third part a little bit more
0: well you know, when you speak as God or nature, it's. I mean, you can think of, um, you know, Hitler speaking about himself as the father and all the people as his children or um, that that you are. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you look at the, the look at the Twitter memes that people like, say, Elon Musk put up of themselves with them as. You know, as gods, you know, think about when, when Zook, even Zuckerberg and Musk, you know, like challenging each other to a, 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 a mixed martial arts fight as if they are kind of. You know, uh, demigods, you know, that, that, that they, they inhabit, you know, Silicon Valley is like their Mount Olympus. And now they're going to have a spectacle battle through media that we get to see the gods with each other. I mean, speaking as God or nature is really just, um, it, it depends. I mean, and there's a lot of read, um, Jacques Allou's, uh, book on propaganda from the, the fifties, I guess, um, is really, is really good, um, uh, is really good on this, but it's, Having people identify you as um, as the mother, as the father, as connected to God, as um, uh, you're 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 both universal and completely personal where the person feels you are speaking just to them. And, you know, there's there's uh, apparently like a Taylor Swift has the ability to do that right but she's pretty benevolent about it right she's doing it you know with the the message of of empowerment and uh identification and all but someone with her um her abilities could be doing it politically could be doing it um differently which is why again why i always i say we've got to be careful about the how do we get people to blank because then we are the same as those who are let's create a big rally where we get people to believe in our God or we get people to vote for our party or we get people to do this. There's that vulnerable moment that happens in the spectacle where people are like, "Huh, it's the same moment. It's called Gruen transfer that happens when someone walks into a, one of the original shopping malls and you go huh? and they they show it on tape. You can watch the videos of it. That the person's kind of jaw opens and their eyes glaze over. It's called Gruen, the Gruen effect or Gruen transfer. It's at that moment that you can drop in really whatever you want, whatever brand, whatever, uh, party, whatever, uh, political ideology, whatever enemy. That's where, um, and, and you just see it. And when, when they do that, they drop that in and then they act as if, and now we are, um, meeting our destiny together, you know, now we are, you know, with the blood and the soil and the forest and the God and the um, there's that uh, uh, in, in the rhetoric comes a, a certain, uh, assertion that this is the natural way, that this is more natural, that we are returning to some kind of, you know, p- uh, pagan, barbarian, uh, masculine, uh, original, uh, authentic, back to what we really are, that it is a more natural, open, from my gut state of being. But it's not. It's completely manipulated. The book from 1999,
4: Coercion, Why We Listen to What They Say. Uh, the cover of the 1990 book, 1999 book has a, a quote from Senator Bob Kerry on uh-huh. the front cover. Remind folks who he, uh, he was and uh, and, who, and why he ended up on the cover of your book.
0: Bob Carey. He's a, 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 a senator from uh, uh, Nebraska, right, who um, he actually lost his foot in the Vietnam War. And he was kind of a presidential candidate and then had, you know, kind of a scandal about a particular episode during the war, which is still unclear exactly what happened, but it was it was not good enough to to. you know, cost him his, his bid there, but he was always nice to me and an artist and interesting. And he was actually the boyfriend of my neighbor when I lived in the West Village, back when you could live in the West Village as a single barely working writer and you could get an apartment in the West Village. And she lived across the hall from me and he was, uh, her boyfriend. So I, I got to hang out with him a little bit and um, asked if he would do a, a blurb for the book and, he did. He, was real, he did a really funny one. His whole blurb originally, and they wouldn't accept it. I thought they were foolish, was um, uh, read this or else, which is like perfect for like the book is called coercion. Get it? <laughs> well, like, read this
4: the, or else. Uh, the, 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 um, what ended up on the cover is an important book, a clear warning to Americans who are unaware of the power of words to intentionally mislead the reader, listener or viewer. Read this book and nobody gets hurt.
0: Yeah, that's good. Read this book and nobody gets hurt. Well, at least they, so he, they sent it back and thank God he, uh, he, he added to it so they would accept him, um, on there. But yeah, it was a, it was a real gift. He then became a uh, president of the new school in New York for a while and helped them kind of build up their, they build this big building and kind of uh, absorb Parsons and a bunch of things. He was a, uh, uh, controversial, but very useful figure in, uh, 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 bringing that place to uh, to its current uh, current standing.
4: Plenty of callers still waiting for you. This is Michael, Broward County, Florida. You're on, hey with Douglas Rushkoff.
3: hi, Mr. Rushkoff. Now, touching on culture is biology and social contagion. In chatting with ChatGPT the other day, I discovered in trying to get some information about our Governor DeSantis that it is doing exactly what Santos is doing. And check this out, because it's basically just a semantics engine, it admits to the fact that the responses it provides and the reason it's programmed that way is for the same reason Santos does it is he wants to avoid things that are potentially negative, (laughs) say things that are dispositive. And what I'm talking about is if you look into anything having to do with racism or misogyny or homophobia. So that's one thing that I think you're going to start a, a fad. People are going to be a, kind of like it used to be. You get it to say one thing and say the other and it would blow up. It doesn't. It says, Yes, you're right. But here's the really exciting thing to mess with your friends who are rich. Tell them about success PTSD where it changes your brain just like trauma does so that you react in the exact same way to be more self-interested, more quick reacting. Their brains are morphing and causing a lot of what you're discussing which is interesting because Herbert Spencer started that in the 1860s which Mm. is why 30% of our kids can't read because we teach it that way even though 100% of them can't we we verify them medically that they can read but we teach to the bell curve not to prevent the bell curve we as they start to catch the hare and the rabbit like on a a pretend greyhound track we pull the information faster to be sure we achieve the 30% failure as the State Department has done for 50 years they've done random educational test country to country so it's there we've never had more than 30 percent
4: well michael you bring up a a lot of topics here let me let douglas rushkoff jump in on and which one do you want to talk about
0: i mean a lot of this i mean i would say the 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 embracing feature of this is sort of applying industrial age logic to our many social institutions you know and coming up whatever metric you put on the wall is the metric that you're going to get right Is that's what you're going to go for? And they are necessarily reductive metrics. So you know you bring the kid in um, uh, uh, in vitro, right, into a classroom and say, "Oh, we're going to teach this kid today. We're going to teach this kid long division." And without any understanding what's going on in that kid's house. You know, the kid's mother is moving from shelter to shelter and the father's um, a drunk and not even there. And the kid's trying to contend with that. How do I take care of my mother? The challenge that that kid, the life challenge that kid is dealing with and what that child needs to learn at that moment um, is not reflected in the assessment that they've done on their long division at the end of the week. And you know, that's um, that's the problem with a kind of a one-size-fits-all, uh, 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 not just education system, but but everything system. You know, when we decided, funny in um, in the Thatcher era, there's this famous story about how when they were trying to uh, use uh, 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 incentives to get hospitals to perform better, they said they would give more money to hospitals that reduced the amount of time people spent in the emergency room waiting room. And that, that that for them to get onto into beds as quickly as possible. So what the the emergency room did was they took the wheels off their gurneys in order to call them beds. They lined the hallways with the gurneys, put people on those, and declared them being in the room. But the time and energy it took to do that actually slowed the rate at which people got medical care. So in order to win the metric, you know, they ended up reversing the thing. So what, what I hear in, 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 in this, what I hear in this caller's concern is the way that we kind of certain, we, we institutionalize short term oversimplified values at the expense of whatever the thing is that we might actually um, want to accomplish. And the, the kind of the bigger and more convoluted the bureaucracies get, um, very often the harder and harder it is to get back down to um, what it is, what it is that we that we want, you know, and and the same with, um, yeah, I mean, chat GPT is not, I mean, people have to realize it's I'm sure most of view- your viewers do chat GPT is is hype. Right now, it really is hype. It's it's a stock market desperate for another big thing, right? Zoom and all these uh, uh, post uh, all the COVID apps are not being used as much. All the streaming media companies are not being watched as much because we're going outside. They need another thing. ChatGPT is really just an advanced search engine right now. That's that's all. We're looking at, you know, it, it it takes your Google results and kind of pushes them into something that looks more like um, human speech, but it's wrong most of the time. It's not actually correct. It's just reverting everything to the mean. It's looking what's the most average answer to that question, and that doesn't offend anybody or doesn't say anything controversial or upsetting. So, it's wrong and it's. And it's self-censored, so it's 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 not it's not what we think it is. It's it's just search right now. And yeah, we can muse on a future um, where these things are are actually smart, but um, we're not there.
4: Out to the Beehive State next. This is Ruth St. George, Utah. Good morning.
7: Hi. Um, I have a couple of points to go back to some of the things that you were talking about early in the conversation. First, uh, I've been a widow for a little over two years, and I've been a long caregiver. And so I live in this gorgeous area. So my life is all about experiencing things in real time, not virtually. Mm. Um, I, 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 I need to, and I love live performance. It's like, I don't, I don't care. Little kids, teenage kids adults, professionals, I want to see people trying and delivering something essential. It it's it's great for my soul. Mm.
4: Ruth, thanks for that. Mr. Rushkoff.
0: Yeah, I mean I I've been blessed to be able to even just drive through Utah a few times and um if you haven't had, haven't had the opportunity to do it, do it. You, it's different, right? <laughs> you feel you feel connected to the creation creation itself. Just go there, get out of the car, and stare at a rock for five minutes. Um, it's the trippiest, most uh, uh, boy talk about awe. Yeah, I mean Utah, some parts of New Mexico do that too. It's 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 amazing, but yeah, it's so. The thing that amazes me about uh, our state of disconnection is how quickly you reconnect. It recalibrating to reality is almost instantaneous. You know, if you don't have nature like she's describing a real world, just find a friend and look in their eyes and take two or three breaths with them. And it's almost unbearable if you haven't done it in a while. It it <sighs> it reconnects you um, almost instantly. So it's interesting for how long it took to decalibrate us, how much technology, how much engineering, how many billions or trillions of dollars were spent to get us in this crazy state where we all need the SSRIs and and you, you need to get an app in order to cure you from the app that you just used, right? You're gonna get a wellness app and a meditation app to get you over the Facebook app and the Snapchat app. You just, you, you touch ground, you put your feet on the ground and look at another person, look at the shore, look at a cliff, breathe in a forest, you know, look at your, your, the eyes of your dog or cat even. Um, it, it, you get it so quickly. It's so accessible, even in, you know, we're, we're the forest fire haze that we're looking at today on the East Coast, um, it's, still, it's, it's so accessible that when I have hope in the future, it's how quickly um, these bonds, these systems, um, how quickly they restore when you give them half a chance. You were talking about
4: creation uh, a minute ago. Uh, when you're creating your writing, uh, and I'm not talking about the podcasts and and mm. interviews like this, but when you're writing, is there a place you go to to create, to think? What is your your process for
0: writing? Uh, now, 20 books. Um, I mean, I tend to go about it the same way, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Is I uh, uh, use I, I write note cards. You know, I have ideas on note cards, and I end up you know putting them on the wall in, you know, what, what, what are called slugs sort of like, um, content areas and then content areas kind of mutate into chapters. And then, then I order them so that each chapter flows as a kind of little five act structure. So because of that, I need to have a place where the book happens you know, a a room, an office, uh, because the the book ends up being kind of physically represented with the note cards. And I've had so many years of experience with the note cards that I know how much I have based on how many cards there are and how dense they are and how important the topics are in each one. So I can kind of feel the book more, um, intuitively or, or somatically. Are we as, in that room with uh, you right now? Yeah. Although I haven't, um, did I, 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 I wrote the end of survival of the richest in here. Yeah. I mean, I've rearranged it since, but the wall that was the, my bookcase wall was the wall where the book was written and then I've been trying to use um, Trello, it's a, it's a program that sort of looks like note cards, as a substitute, and it doesn't quite uh, organize the same way. I, I can't, I've got to feel the book as a as a, 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 I have to be kind of in physical relationship to the ideas of the book. It's a bit like kind of a chapel of memory or something, because I know, okay, these ideas are here, and then it's sort of in my head, it's located there, in that chapter I mean, so I can look at any book and the chapter, and I remember where the chapter was in the room where I was writing it—a chapel of memories. What, what was the hardest book for you to write? Um, it's interesting. Uh. This last book came right out because it has a memoir quality. There's all these stories in it. That was what my agent told me. The best part of your books is not the rhetoric. It's the stories. So I end up telling all these kind of ridiculous, fun stories about my experiences with these crazy billionaire people and and their, their antics. Um, so that one kind of came right out. Um, the most researched book was Life, Inc., You know, because I really looked, I went to the Yale, you know, library and looked at Dutch East India Trading Company charters and uh, that was pretty intense. But I think the hardest, um, the hardest one was probably a graphic novel called Alistair and Adolf. And it's about the um, the real, but in my case, somewhat fictionalized occult war between Alistair Crowley and Adolf Hitler at the end of World War Two. Um and three of the the first three artists who were hired to work on the book I do the writing they do the art they all had major life catastrophes like illness and suicides and really awful awful things and um I was starting to get scared that you know you write about someone like Alistair Crowley and then there's like like bad juju in there or there, there there's something dangerous um, happening So that I got really scared when I was writing that, that I was like touching energies that I shouldn't. Um, and then it was just really hard to do to be really faithful to the actual World War Two story and to tell that story as reality, as history, while also um, getting into these characters in the part that wasn't real, and trying to distinguish between the two in in what felt like a responsible way. So that was um that was the most harrowing writing experience I've had.
4: Just about thirty five minutes left with Douglas Rushkoff this morning. This is Marshall, Houston, Texas. Thanks for waiting.
3: Thank you very much, gentlemen. This is a fascinating conversation. I'm interested in your role with research, particularly that Life, Inc. book that you talked about. How much of the research and writing, do they overlap each other? How much do you need to do before you start writing? And also, your role with agents. Thank you very much.
0: My role with agents? Like uh, literary agents? Yes. Okay. Um, so with Life, Inc., um, I like to have all the research done before I start writing, writing. Um, I'll, do my, I'll do a little bit of research to get to the proposal stage. And the proposal is usually something that turns into a version of the introduction to the book. So the proposal usually gets me to what in, in academia we would call the research question. You know, so for Life Inc., it was like, where did this corp, where did the corporation come from? And how did corporatism become the, the, the religion of our society? And what the heck can we do about it? Um, but, and I had done enough research to know I was going to look at central currency. I was going to look at the chartered monopoly. I was going to figure out, but I didn't know when I wrote the proposal that I was going to find that I was really going to uncover the nature of the deal between the monarchs. And the first charter monopolies and what, what that was and how it worked. And I, I discovered things that, that weren't understood before. So that was, um, and that was real, um, research. But once the research was done and I had all this stuff, um, I, I make my outline on the wall and the snake and I can see occasionally there'll be a little blank area, but I'm really scared to write all the way up to an area that I'm going to discover something that's going to undo what was earlier. So, I mean, my process is usually once I get that outline done, the only way I get through the book is going straight through with kind of blinders on. And I've justified it that I'm kind of putting on a miner's lamp and digging the whole tunnel of the book until I get to light on the other end of the mine. And I've got to go straight through it. And I go straight through it because the reader is going to pretty much... That's the convention of a book, unless it's a weird book. They're going to have to go straight through it. So I kind of do the same thing and I don't look back because if I look back and I've tried that where you kind of rewrite the book to the point that you're at and then continue, then rewrite it until you continue. Then the end of the book has much less attention than the front of the book. It's like combing, you know, combing someone with really long hair. You know, you, 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 you end up, uh, uh, kind of uh, it, it's different at the front if you if you haven't gotten all the way down so i get to the very end of the book and then i edit then i edit going through it the only thing that weird that might happen as i'm writing the book is i realize a chapter is so much bigger than the other four or five chapters that i break it up into two i go you know this is actually i could break this here and create two chapters um so it's sort of for me it's that the the research um Occasionally I will do research. I'll be two thirds of the way through the book and go, you know, I need another story or I don't really understand what happened here. I'm going to go back and, and, and get more justification. And worst case, I find out that the justification pushes things in another way. And then I either drop it or tell that story in a, in a different way. I, I have to use it otherwise. Um, my relationship with agents has been, I've had a bunch of them. You know, I, I, uh, started. Uh, getting an agent because I had written a screenplay for somebody. Um, And that screenplay had an agent. And uh, uh, then there was like a co-agent. So I got my first literary agent um, sort of through the back door and ended up doing the wrong thing. They, like, I thought they had kind of dropped me. They hadn't called me in a long time. I thought they gave up selling a book. And then I had a friend who was an agent. He said, "Oh, I'll sell the book." And then he sold it. And then the first agent was like, "Wait a minute, you know that's my book." But it was like a year since the first agent had called me or done anything. And I got sued, and I had to give like like a bunch of money to this one and a bunch of money to that one. That was um, media virus. Um, so then I was with this, uh, this this agent, and then that agent turned out to really have um, uh, a lot of issues. He was stealing money from a bunch of people. So I left him and went to William Morris. I had them for a while and then my agent left William Morris. So, do I stay or do I follow? So, I stayed and then the next agent wasn't so good. And then I went with a science agent named John Brockman, who's a great uh, literary agent. And, you know, but his whole agency ended up kind of having a, 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 a an Epstein association that I felt like they weren't fully acknowledging. So, I, I kind of left and I also wanted to do more Hollywood things at that point. And that agency was only um, really, just books, and I wanted to get things on the screen and start playing there. So I ended up at Creative Artists Agency, and I don't talk to my agent there that much. But she's like really good. She's the one who told me, "Don't write another book like this. You're gonna you're, you're reaching these people and the same people again and again and again with these kind of more polemic things. If you really want to reach people, you've got to tell stories." You know, and if I want to do nonfiction, we'll tell nonfiction stories, but at least tell stories that that's um, in the literary medium. The story is how you engage. That's the narrative arc. That's what it is. Um, So I started doing that and she was, you know, she was right. So now, I mean, and now and always, I've seen my agent, but even more so my editor as my partner in the project. You know, I don't want to sell to a publishing company that has an editor that is not adding value to the book, right? Not just adding value to the distribution and the cover and the sales of the book, but the editor should be my partner in uh uh it's like a dramaturg in a play they really are the first audience and boy uh, my editor um tom mayer at norton which is where i ended up as my publisher i mean i'm not going to leave him unless god knows what happens um but but no he was the one who told me to write this book he had written a, uh, he had read a couple of articles that i had written doing stuff on medium and some of the articles were doing well and i did this article on the survival of the richest about these five billionaires i met who who wanted advice on how to how to hit out their their doomsday bunkers. And that article had done really well. And then a year or two later, I wrote about the COVID crisis, how I felt like a lot of people were retreating and almost adopting that billionaire mindset of I'm going to retreat into my house with my 60-inch TV and my, my, uh, uh, you know, Oculus glasses and get a private tutor. And I can make this work out on the Hamptons. And I wrote that piece and that's when he called me and said, Doug, this is your next book. You have to do this. And then I called the agent and I said, this. And the editor, he says, I should do this. And she said, if you could do it in stories, you know, <laughs> which was her thing, then sure, do it. Um, so it was actually a book that came from the editor to me. I was writing for an audience of one, uh, and, and he would write and say, yeah, this chapter, but what about this? And what about that? Um, and to be at the place where And it's a strange place to be. It took me to get old to do it, where I see the notes and critiques from the editor as gifts rather than as work, as ways to get in. Well, it's because I trust him, you know, uh, as as oh, my gosh, this guy's helping me make this better. He is making me a better writer, you know, to give up the both the fear and the hubris to think that someone else doesn't know better than you um, is uh, or at least as well as you um, is was really. Uh, really, really good for me. So yeah, I look at all these people as, as my partners in crime here. And, uh, boy, it feels so much better to come out with a book that you know your people are, are a part of. It's a group, a group project. So it, it just, and it, and it plays, I mean, of course, it's my whole team human thing, but I'm finally, you know, finally
4: living it. And if you want that story of meeting with the tech billionaires worried about their bunker, uh, it's how Douglas Rushkoff begins survival of the richest escape fantasies of the tech billionaires. It's his latest book, 20 books over the past 30 years. Also a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queens College in New York. Uh, and we'll go to New York. Mike's waiting in, is it Mahopak, New York, Mike? Yes. You're on with Douglas Rushkoff.
5: Uh, Good afternoon. I have a question for the professor uh, in terms of individual human nature. Why has, um, wherever it's been tried, communism and socialism throughout the world has just been very ineffective and basically a miserable failure? But uh, in terms of these uh, self-appointed elite, these tech billionaires and so forth, I just want the people listening to understand that um, what complete hypocrites these people are, Zuckerberg, Soros, Soros. all the rest of them, you know, they're surrounded by highly trained armed bodyguards. And yet they'll advocate for the average man or woman in the United States uh, in terms of defending themselves, gun control and so forth. So I I just want people to understand that, you know, these these theoretical uh, systems of government, you know, they, they just they don't work. And then people will say, oh, it hasn't really been tried. Um, to, to a full extent, it should be. But um, free market capitalism, by far, has been the most effective, uh, and, and, and the constitutional republic we live in, in America, by far the most uh, effective way to uh, govern and, and live, and in terms of economics. But um, I, this, these tech billionaires, it's just really disgusting. Uh, they're just bathed in hypocrisy, the, the entire uh way they lived uh, versus the average person in America.
4: Mike, got your point, uh, Mr. Rushkoff.
0: Yeah, I mean, capitalism has worked as long as when we get to periods of extreme excess, we have, you know, major uh, reformation, right? you big regulation. So, yeah, um, when things spun out of control, you get a Franklin Delano Roosevelt and a WPA and uh, uh, GI bills and you and education bills. You you um, you reform the thing, you know, and that's that's when capitalism works best is when. You do that. I mean, and you ended up in a situation because they realized they had to where, you know, the income tax rate went up to like 80 or 90 percent during that time in order to kind of bail out what was happening. Because when capitalism works too well, when you automate it, you end up extracting so much value that you make the people around you poorer. So, you know, when Uber and Facebook and Google are doing well, you see tent villages (laughs) people are living around them right so they end up destroying markets through what they're calling creative destruction but is actually kind of destructive destruction they're they're storing more money and then sure you get to the place now where mark zuckerberg says oh i'm going to give back 95% of my money back to the places that i took it out it's like Dude, if you had made Facebook ninety-five percent less extractive, you wouldn't have to be trying to shove your money back into these systems that you've decimated, right? These 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 ecosystems and societies. Now, I would argue that you know communism and socialism—the the reason why um, I would say they haven't worked is because they've been that they're trying to do these things at scale, you know. And I look at at scale as is itself. The problem. Like when Marx was writing about socialism, what he really meant was how do we return the, how do we retrieve the social element of commerce and exchange, right? Me borrowing a drill from the neighbor instead of buying one at Home Depot. Is that a crime or is it okay? And I understand the perspective that it is a crime because even though I don't need a drill, if I don't buy the drill, then how will Home Depot grow? How will Black and Decker grow? How will that? It's my responsibility as a citizen in capitalism to promote the exponential growth of the economy. And that's the part where it gets where it gets off, where we, we see it not just as a means to an end, but as the end, as the thing, as the only way. So when I when I look at like socialism, I, I I'm talking how do you put the social back into it and the sort of minimize the ism, right? When, I, when you talk about communism, well, I like community. I don't know I like ism so much either, because it's not something that you can orchestrate so well from a pullet bureau. When, when it's interesting, Marx, and this is where I think he went he went a little off, or or you know Lenin or Trotsky or someone in in trying to exercise Marx. He's got this great um uh, uh, tract where he writes about like Robinson Crusoe, and you know that Robinson Crusoe had all these little ledgers because he needed to maximize his own efficiency. So he said, okay, he needs five fish per week. So he's going to spend this much time fishing and he needs to spend this much time, you know, uh, collecting water and this much time making rope. So he has this, and he had a little ledger and Marx said, oh, if Robinson Crusoe did it for himself, what if we created a ledger for like the whole country? So we know how many people need to do this and that. And, this. and it's like, dude, you can't plan that out or you're going to end up with people on the line to get toothpaste. There's not going to be enough. So kind of markets can be really good for figuring out supply and demand and all that. But they're really bad at figuring out like, how do we share water? How do you deal with something like air? You know, how do you deal with, um, with with things that are best uh, orchestrated as a commons. And I don't mean communism, I mean commons. This is a river. We all share responsibility for the river. We're going to make rules about what can happen in this river, how many fish you're allowed to take from this river, and we're going to enforce those who violate those rules so that there's enough fish or enough pasture or enough air or whatever it is for everybody to use. So some things, sure, let's make markets for them, for our iPhones, and let's compete, you know, in, a, in, in great, in capitalism. Let's have people invest in the things that they think are going to win. But, but a, a lot of stuff doesn't really work, um, in terms of the sort of, uh, uh, market sensibility. You need to create a scarcity of something in order for the market to work around it. And, um, it's much harder to do that with stuff that that should or at least could be in abundance. So I think what we need is a multifaceted uh, 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 an ecology of economic models that are different depending on what it is that we're trying to share together. About 20
4: minutes left in our discussion with Douglas Rushkoff this morning on In-Depth. One of the questions we always ask our authors who come on In-Depth is uh, their favorite books and also their books that they're reading right now. Here's what Douglas Rushkoff said to both questions. On favorite books, Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger, John Kennedy Tools' Pulitzer Prize winner, Confederacy of Dunces, Lewis Mumford, Techniques and Civilization, The Torah, Virginia Woolf's to The Lighthouse, and in terms of what he's currently reading. Peter Turchin's End Times and Jem Bendel's Breaking Together. Uh, which one or two of those books do you want to talk about in the context of this discussion we've been having today?
0: Um, well, I already talked about Torah, so we got one out of the way. Um, let's do you know, Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger is a really interesting one. Um, with respect to that last conversation we were having, because what what Robert Anton Wilson was a great a kind of counterculture writer and prankster and trickster. He he, he was responsible uh, for, well, you know, partly responsible for the, the Church of Discordia, where every member is a pope. You know, they it was sort of the early 1960s style of intentional disinformation that was being used to kind of promote that Abby Hoffman uh, uh, radical hippie um, psychology. But he wrote this book, Cosmic Trigger, and what he's arguing is that – not that everything is true, but that we can all hold multiple perspectives at different times and not to take any one of them too very seriously. So you could look at a situation as an atheist scientist and see see it from that perspective. You could look at it as a cynic. You can look at it as a new age fantasy person. You can look at it as a psychedelic person. There's all these different ways um, to look at things. And uh it 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 would have helped people today you know in the whole kind of um conspiracy theories and qanon and um people looking for well what really happened here it's like well it rather than needing to grab onto one of them to know was the, did this happen was that happen is the 5g tower connected to the election booth connected to the covid vaccine like, wait a minute you know To be able to tolerate not knowing, to be able to tolerate that there's all these different perspectives really does shield you from... The same kinds of people that use spectacle to gain power use confusion and conspiracy and unknown and as ways of gaining power as well. And I feel like, you know, a lot of these poor kids the sort of the Gamergate boys who were then scooped into this kind of a, a, a radical right meme wars um, ended up kind of being the, the the victims of their imagination rather than the uh, uh being able to really kind of harvest their own their own creativity. So his book is really good for walking you through what he calls the chapel perilous, which is the confusion. What's true? What's not true? Is everything true? Is nothing true? And how do you kind of get to the other side of that? And he was really, it was really good at that. Um, The other one is, you know, the book, I just kind of finished it last night, is um, um, Peter Turchin's book, which is called, what was that one called again? Um, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political
4: Disintegration. Yeah,
0: it was really, what, what that book does in a really interesting and rigorous way is show that and it was nice to feel wrong, you know, I love to be wrong and to get corrected, is that when these kind of revolution period things happen, when when civilizations break down, it's not because the rich got so rich and the poor got so poor that the poor revolt. That's what I thought is happening. Oh, no, if it gets worse, the division of worse wealth gets worse, and so many people are in the tent villages, then they will revolt. He's like, no, that's not what happens. What happens is, that actually it's the creation of too many elites not that there's millions of elites but there's so many elites that there's not enough for the elites to all be elite and they start competing with each other and that's what breaks things down when there's too many elites i mean and, and i'm sure the the you know, the, any of the listeners who are like uh, angry at coastal elites and all that, there's too many coastal elites. There's not enough for all these coastal elites to be coastal elites, right? There's not enough. There's a lot of billionaires. And oddly enough, and this is research I'm doing for a Guardian piece I'm writing now, that I thought that like Bezos and Musk and Zuckerberg, like if you took the top five billionaires today, that they had more total wealth, than like the five billionaires of JP Morgan and and Carnegie and those guys. They actually have less wealth, the top five versus that top five. As measured in, in dollars or, or percentage of the economy? Percentage of the of the economy. Percentage of the of the of the economy. But there's more billionaires. The top thousand billionaires have, you know, way, way, way more than everybody else. So there's a there's a larger billionaire class. I mean it's still a tiny number of people compared to the whole population, but it's uh, it's spread out through a wider bunch of billionaires who are now all competing with each other for the the scraps of <laughs> the scraps of billions. And that's sort of what breaks things down. To
4: Minneapolis, Minnesota, this is Steve via an emailed in question. To what extent do you think that America's societal tendency to be less present is contributing
0: to increased emotional and anxiety trends. Tremendously and totally, and maybe it's 99.9% of it. You know, the it's funny, when you have, uh, a, a lot of us are raised with kids who have, um, uh, you know, one kind of sensory or, or nervous disorder of another, whether it's ADD or spectrum or sensory processing or too much cortisol or whatever it is, that they're not calibrating. And the easiest way to calibrate your kid is to bring them into bed with you, right? <laughs> and just, or sit with them, body to body, skin to skin. Ideally, if they're little enough, you know that it's still appropriate. But being with people, being on a team, being on a uh, 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 co-presence, co-location it's It's the surest way to calibrate to gain mental health i mean when, when you think about if you think about our society as like addicted to technology and addicted to money and addicted to this crazy stuff, this idea that well, just one more thing and then uh uh you know then I'll try to do good for the world I just need another thousand dollars in the bank, then I can start behaving ethically you know if we are addicts and we need the 12 step program, right? We need the equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous for our addiction to these crazy things. What's the first thing you do? You go in a room with other people. Right, you don't do. you go to a meeting. that's the one requirement. You go to a meeting in a room and experience fellowship every day. You find the others. That's what's on the back of my book team Human. Find the others. You find the others and be with them. Um, absolutely. it's our our lack of presence with each other that's making it harder for us to calibrate naturally and making us actually actively more distrustful of each other. You looking on Twitter, you don't know, you can't ever feel the positive. Not truly. You can get a dopamine hit. Someone retweeted me. Someone liked my tweet. I get a hit of dopamine. But you don't get oxytocin, right, which is the actual bonding hormone. You don't get your mirror neurons don't fire. You don't have an organic experience of of camaraderie, of fellowship, of community, not to call it even communism. You don't have that. You don't feel part of um, part of the group. It's a very different kind of it's much more like spectacle right we all agree we all look at this person's tweet we've all given it the thumbs up because they've told us who the enemy is because they're mad at biden they're mad at the u.s they are mad at russia they, you know and we all do that that's not the same thing that's not the same um internal state and it doesn't um no it 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 leads to the we see all the data you know that the kids who are on On, 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 you know, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all those things, instead of live co-present with one another, are suffering terribly, you know, from everything from, you know, anorexia to Tourette's, you know, to, to, there's a new TikTok acquired Tourette's, which is sort of a mimetic, um, kind of a, a pseudo Tourette's, but, It's a symptom. They're cutting. They're 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 killing themselves. This is not this is a it's become a public health crisis. And the thing is, you don't solve it with another app. That then, you know, the 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 wellness app, what you you solve it with, you know, is good old fashioned. I sound like an old person, but but it shouldn't be considered nostalgic. Co-presence touch, you know, being with other people um, is is is. I think it should always stay in 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 fashion. For book readers who who may
4: not know your social media presence, do you tweet? Are you on Facebook? Do you TikTok?
0: You know, I'm not. I I have a Twitter account, and I will send a link to my podcast each week. And now I'm even considering stopping that. I mean, I used to participate back when it was a little bit more of a conversation, but now you know I'll tweet. Like, uh, uh, oh, I'm going to be on C-SPAN book TV today. And, you know, if I get 50 likes for that and 30 of them are from bots pretending to be sex workers, there's this new kind of bot out there that, that it's like there's some kind of a scam. And I guess you're supposed to want to want to hire them as as uh, either virtual or real uh, um, uh, uh, strippers of some kind or, or, or sex workers. Um What's the point? You know, it's like such a little cesspool of crap and it's so aggravating. And then to see the kinds of conversations that are engendered there that I don't, uh, I don't even want to do that. So, you know, I post on LinkedIn, which is a little bit less that way. It's a little bit more professional or something. But no, I don't have a, a social media presence. I don't do social media activity. I have a, a blue sky account I haven't used yet. I have a Mastodon account, which is better because it's a kind of a federated version of a Twitter that I would use, but I'm not finding a real need for it. I get so much email that servicing the email feels like, you know, as much time as I want to spend looking at the screen. And I'm just learning, you know, meeting my neighbors and finding out about my town and who's here. Um, There's only so much life left to live, you know, I'm an adult, I just don't want to spend it in there.
4: I I want to read when you publicly quit Facebook in in 2013, Mm -hmm. you wrote a column about it on CNN. Uh, You wrote, Facebook has never been merely a social platform, rather it exploits our social interactions the way a Tupperware party does. Facebook does not exist to help us make friends, but to turn our network of connections, brand preferences and activities over time, our social graphs into a commodity for others to
0: exploit right they would sell them they would sell our social graphs and when I wrote that was a time when Facebook decided that they could use you to advertise to your people whether or not you wanted it or not you know so it's like oh if you said oh I'm at Starbucks today you know they might broadcast that for money to your friends or to, to everyone who follows you and more look, Rushkoff likes, you know, Starbucks, you know, or whether whether you went there or not. I'm like, geez, there it, it was going crazy, but it got worse than that. The real function of Facebook now is to take your past behavior, use that to put you in a statistical bucket, predict what you're likely to do in the future, and then make sure that you do that. So if Facebook looks at your past activity and decides through its algorithm that you are 80 percent likely to go on a diet in the next two weeks, your newsfeed will get filled with stories like, oh, you know, uh, what happens if you're too fat or well, what you're um, if you eat bad food, what's going on in your bloodstream and all. Now, they're not doing that in order to sell you a specific diet product. What they're doing that for is to get that 80% accuracy up to 90% or 95%. Those messages are directed at the 20% of people who are going to choose to do something else, who are going to do something that wasn't consistent with their statistical profile. So the function of Facebook and these other social networks in that regard is to auto-tune humanity, to take the 20% who are going to do some novel, strange, wonderful, weird human thing, who are going to be less predictable, less like the algorithm predicted them to be, and reduce that down. You don't want any people doing the weird thing. So it's basically auto-tuning the soul, the weirdness, the independence out of, out of humanity. And that's not an environment that you want to be spending time in.
4: With about five minutes left in our conversation, did wanna read this from another viewer in Hawaii, Carla, who says, thanks for sharing your insights. It's brilliant. As a yoga therapist, actor, lover of history and language, I do see the repetitive nature of humans and agree, just stopping and breathing with another human has profound powers. Humans are disconnected from each other and themselves. How do you recommend we begin a world-hate healing?
0: It's weird, you know, I, I do yoga. And so I hope people turn off the TV. Ah, he's one of them. Um, I I do yoga like three times a week with someone who teaches in my neighborhood, a great teacher. And um, after COVID, she uh, or during COVID, she started doing it um, virtually, you know, doing it on Zoom. And um, because some of the people don't really want to go back to live in the room. So it's become Zoom yoga and it was like a, a few months ago. I did a Zoom yoga. I did a Zoom yoga session. Turned off the thing, and for no, re- I started crying afterwards. I was just like, "This sucks. This so sucks." It's like, yes, I'm glad to move my body in that way and hear a voice and know there's a, but that wasn't. I was doing. I didn't realize I was doing yoga partly to be in the room with the other people doing it, and yes, to breathe their breath and smell their smells and and hear their creaks of their knees and their hips popping or whatever, but to be in a room with other people and that that was gone, you know, maybe I got to find, you know, she's not going to do it. I'm going to find another. I want to be in a room with people, even if it's not as good, I'm going to be in a room with other people. Um, and that's, I mean, gosh, it's great that we had two, two Hawaii calls. Um, I've <laughs> well, always had a spiritual uh, <laughs> feeling about Hawaii. Well, but, me- yeah, it's to find, it's, it's to find the others is the whole, is the whole, that's my whole uh, purpose. What I want to do with whatever I've got left well, is connect with other people.
4: Well, with about the, the two and a half minutes we have left, you mentioned find the others is the, the last words of your book, Team Human, uh, just a, a page or two before you write this. And we started our conversation today about humanist and presentist versus futurist. Uh, you write, the future is less a noun than a verb. It's a thing that we do. I want to end with, with that, with your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, what I was trying to do, it's a little bit robbed from, uh, you know, God is a Verb, uh, which was a great book, too. Um, the idea that, that the future, especially these tech bros and technologists and planners and institutionalists and everyone, they look at the future as, OK, we're going to hire people, futurists, to tell us what's in the future so we can prepare for it. So for the tech bros, they look at the most likely, the most probable future from their algorithms and their AIs, and it says disaster, you know, climate change, economic unrest, electromagnetic pulse, nuclear war. So the way I prepare for that future is building a bunker or getting a rocket ship and going to Mars. And that the best I can do is predict the future and prepare and hang on for it. And what I'm saying is, no, the future is something that we are creating right now. You are making the future with the choices that you make. And if you're preparing for a future where that thing is going to happen, then. You are way more likely of bringing that on. Then what if we prepare for a future where people realize their neighbors are their friends, where people realize that we're in this together, that, that mutual aid and togetherness and connection and community and, and care and, and acknowledging nourishment and acknowledging the social reality, that that's the future that, that we want to create. We create that future by doing it, by enacting it. We are futuring with every action that we take now. You know, so start futuring today and you will like how the world turns out.
4: Author and Professor Douglas Rushkoff has been our guest for the past two hours on in-depth this morning. His latest book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires came out in twenty twenty-two. Twenty books, nonfiction and fiction over the past thirty years. Thanks for
0: talking about some of them with us this morning. Oh thank you and thanks for what you do. This is this is important. An important gathering of people. Appreciate it.